We are going to be in the book of Isaiah. We'll be considering the 44th chapter this morning. If you're using a Bible in the pew in front of you, it's on page 604. So if you would turn there with me to Isaiah 44 and stand for the reading of God's word, we'll read all 28 verses. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 1. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says Yahweh, who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. This one will say, I am Yahweh's. Another will call on the name of Jacob. Another will write on his hand, Yahweh's. And name himself by the name of Israel. Thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first, and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me. Since I appointed an ancient people, let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. All who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a God or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble, let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. He cuts down the cedars and he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. Also, he makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied and he warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god. His idol and falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my god. They know not 
nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so that they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is there knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire, also I baked bread on its coals, I roasted meat and have eaten, and shall I make the rest of it an abomination? Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes, a deluded heart has led him astray, and he cannot deliver himself or say, is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Jacob and Israel, for you are my servant. I formed you. You are my servant. O Israel, you will not be forgotten by me. I have blotted out your transgressions like a cloud and your sins like the mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing, O heavens, for Yahweh has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For Yahweh has redeemed Jacob and will be glorified in Israel. Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself who frustrates the sign of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins, who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, who says of Cyrus, He is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat as we ask God the Holy Spirit for his help. Father, we come to you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we confess to you, amongst many other things, that we are naturally idolatrous and we are naturally blind. And thus, we need your help. We desperately need your Spirit to come into our hearts to renew us and to restore us. And we need you to come to give us understanding And perhaps even more crucial than understanding to give us hearts to believe that your word is true and that your word is good and that your word is reliable. Father, I know that there are 1,000 voices calling for our attention even here this morning. We pray that your voice would ring loudest in our ears and in our hearts. And we pray that your spirit would be operative in our midst so that we would believe your word so that we would worship you, so that we would bear fruit for you and therefore glorify you by enjoying you forever and a day. Please come and bless Maple Avenue Baptist Church this morning. Help me as I preach. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The little boy throws a tantrum because his mom is giving attention to his older sister. The young girl is upset because her best friend is hanging out with people and it doesn't include her. 
The jealous boyfriend can't stand it when his girlfriend talks to other guys, even if it's just a casual conversation. The unreasonable employer guilts you for not coming into work on your day off because you're not prioritizing him and his business. The God of the Bible demands total allegiance from his people. Now, sometimes that's how we can conceive of God. What is the the difference between a boyfriend who, out of his insecurity, demands exclusive attention from his girlfriend and a God who demands the same from his followers? Does this not make God egotistical? Does this not make God appear insecure? Is it reasonable for God to demand total loyalty from us when we condemn people for demanding the very same thing? Um, This is part of what I think Isaiah is going to answer for us this morning. Is it right? Is it reasonable? Is it good? Is it true? In a sense that God would demand total allegiance from his people. So the context here is that Isaiah has just warned that judgment was going to come upon the nation. You remember last week that famous phrase that, um, you know, I have not wearied you, O Israel, but you have wearied me with your sins and your transgressions. And so because of Israel's sin and because of Israel's resolute defiance against the living God, God was going to bring judgment upon them. He was going to do that first through Assyria and then later on through Babylon. And we'll talk about that a little bit throughout the course of this sermon. But as you know, and as you've probably heard as we've been going through the book of Isaiah, and if you're familiar with the broader prophetic literature of the Old Testament, you know that there is a weaving in and out of both judgment and redemption, of coming disaster and coming deliverance for the people of God. And so even as Yahweh is quick to speak of the judgment that is coming upon the covenant nation for their sin, he is equally quick to speak of coming restoration for the same. So even with judgment on the horizon, God speaks a comforting and hopeful word of restoration. If you're taking notes this morning, we're going to look at this passage in three parts or three movements. And so movement number one is the promise of renewal. The promise of renewal, we see that in verses one through five. And so God speaks these comforting and hopeful words to Israel. So the question is, what will God do? These people are judgment-deserving. They're politically and militarily vulnerable. They're sin-ravaged. What is he going to do? What is it that Yahweh promises to his broken and to his sinful people? He says this, and we see this in verses 1 through 5. He's going to pour water to quench the thirst of the dry land. He's going to bless his people with the presence of his spirit, and he's going to cause his people to shoot up like willows that are planted by streams of water. And on this day when God does this, 
It's very clear in verse 5 that the people will gladly identify themselves with Yahweh. Yahweh will be their delight and their boast. And the people of the land will joyously have his name tattooed on their hands, so to speak. And probably the best way to think about these promises is with this idea of reversal. The people's sin had left the land parched and dry. The people's rebellion had driven away the blessing of Yahweh. And the people's folly led them to be ashamed of identifying themselves with Yahweh. But when Yahweh pours out his spirit upon his people, there is a reversal of the effects of sin. There is a reversal of the fall and the curse, and this is what is promised to the remnant of Israel and to the church of God in this age. Do you believe this? Is this your hope, Maple Avenue Baptist Church? That God would pour out his spirit on our barren land. That God would renew our souls as the spring rain refreshes the grass of the fields. That God would restore to us, or restore us to have intimacy with him as we identify as his people. From my understanding of the scriptures, the hope for the people of God in this age is not in the Christianization of our nation. It is not in a bustling and booming economy. It is not even in the reversal of societal norms to what they were in days gone by. No, the hope of God's people is the arrival and the pouring out of his spirit into our midst and into our hearts to cause us to be renewed unto him. God's spirit is our hope. So an important question for Israel to consider, an important question for us to consider, is this. If that's the promise, if that's the destination, if that's the hope, is there anything that can dislodge us from experiencing this restoration? In other words, if this is where the people of God are headed, what might dislodge us from this trajectory? Or for Israel, what might jeopardize them from inheriting this redemption that Yahweh promised? Perhaps for Israel, they would have thought, well, it's the foreign nations. We're in our land now, but Assyria is kind of, you know, on the horizon to overtake us. And then later on, we know that Babylon is going to destroy the capital and take captive many Israelites and bring them back to Babylon. It's the foreign nations. They're the threat. Or, or maybe we think it's, it's Yahweh's impotence. It's his inability to protect us. Or maybe it's his negligence. After all, what kind of a God allows us to be captured by these foreign powers? Or perhaps Yahweh has simply just forgotten about his promises. In fact, these promises were made very long ago. The formation of Israel was some 700 years prior, and the calling of Abraham, which is at the fountainhead of Israel, that was another 500 years before that. So these are ancient promises. We can't really rely on them. No, 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 no. Israel, 
and church of God. The thing that is going to dislodge you from inheriting these promises is not the foreign nations or the strength of their deities, and it certainly is not going to be because of the weakness or forgetfulness of Yahweh. No, the thing that might disqualify you from experiencing and inheriting the promise is your own heart. That's point number two, if you're taking notes, the threat of idolatry. The threat of idolatry, we see this in verses 6 through 23. It's a lengthy section. It's the section that we're going to spend the most time on in this sermon. But remember, the argument that I'm making is that we, as the people of God, are headed towards the restoration that God has promised. And the way that we can experience that is by trusting in Him and remaining in Him. And so the one thing that is going to threaten that is idolatry. So let's kind of look at this and linger here for a little bit. In verses 6 through 8, Yahweh declares himself to be the Redeemer and the King of Israel. And then he uses this phrase which shows up time and time again throughout the Bible, particularly here in Isaiah, and then I think also of the book of Revelation where Christ applies these titles to himself. One commentator says, As first, Yahweh does not derive as being from any other, but is self-existing. As last, he remains supreme at the end. So God stands at the beginning and end of history as the king over the universe. And it is from him that all other creatures derive their existence. He's able to tell events before they happen. And as the rock, you'll notice that title that he gives to himself, God does. As the rock, he is the stable and unchangeable one. And also in the scriptures, the rock also has connotations of being the source of life, particularly being able to bring water to a parched and thirsty people. He alone, then, is able to predict the future. He alone is the creator. He alone is the rock. He alone is God. So, The answer to our earlier question then, for God to demand total allegiance from his people, is that like an insecure boyfriend demanding that his girlfriend only pay attention to him? Absolutely not. The words and the concepts might happen to coincidentally match up, but it is nothing of the sort. You see, the insecure boyfriend whether rightly or wrongly, thinks that he needs his girlfriend in order to be satisfied and happy. But God does not need me or you at all. He has existed from before all time began. He is self-sufficient in and of himself. He has life in himself. He does not need us to be happy or to be satisfied because he is the blessed one. He is completely happy in and of himself. In fact, if anything, the reason why we ought to worship Yahweh is not for his good and his benefit because something is lacking in him, but rather it is for our benefit because we desperately need him. God alone is God. By that, I mean that the God of Israel alone is God, and the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ alone is God. And you might say, which I think is fair to say, but surely the God of Israel is not the only true God. How can you possibly say that the Christian God is the only legitimate deity? 
There must be truth in every religion and therefore in every God. Are you saying that the belief system of atheists and agnostics who are morally upright people are wrong in what they believe? And just to clarify, I said that it's, 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 it's you know, right for you to ask these questions or whatever. What, what I mean by that is I can see that being a, a question for people who live in the modern age where we live in a pluralistic society. That's all I meant by that. I'm not affirming the existence of false gods. But... And Isaiah answers this by going on a rabbit trail. You, you can kind of see it in the way that the text is formatted in your Bible it's a, it's a different typeset. So verses 1 through 8 kind of has a certain structure, and then verses 9 through 20 has a different structure. And so Isaiah goes on an oh-so-important rant. Perhaps you can think of it like a story within a story. And we might call this section Yahweh's Discourse Concerning Idols. This is the true God's perspective on false gods. This is God's estimation, the God of Israel's estimation of the idols of the nations. Let's look at this section together. I think it is oh so helpful for us. Let's consider for a moment how idols are manufactured. And as I was reading, you probably noticed that there are two professions that were mentioned. One, that of a metalsmith, and second, that of a carpenter. First, the metalsmith, or the ironsmith, a metal worker, he takes the metal, and then he softens it over the coals, and he takes his tool to shape and fashion that metal into the image of a cow, or whatever other creature that he wishes to fashion it into. And the ironsmith is able to do this due to his competence and skill, and because of his big biceps. What is wrong with this? Well, Isaiah says, the, the very one who made the idol, don't you see, becomes hungry if he skips a meal. The very one who is responsible for the existence of this idol cannot go but a few days without water. The point here is that the origin of idols is with men. They are the product of human thinking. They are the invention of human hearts. And they are the result of human powers. Second, let's consider the carpenter or the worker of wood. Like carpenters of our day, ancient carpenters had tools to measure, to mark, and to mold. And by the skill of their hands, the carpenter would take a block of wood and fashion it in the shape of a man. And so the finished product is an idol, which is in the shape of a man, with the glory of a man, and with the limitations of a man because it dwells in a house, you see. And the carpenter is committed to this process. The, the, the section on the carpenter is longer than the section on the ironsmith. And the reason is because Isaiah wants to illustrate for us that the carpenter really is committed to this process. Long before he fashioned the idol, he was actually the one to plant the tree. And he cuts down that tree once it is fully grown. And then after he cuts that tree down, here's the ironic thing. Half of it he makes into firewood and makes bread over the fire. And with the other half, he chisels it into a god and bows down to it in worship. In other words, the gods of the nations derive their deity from, as one commentator put it, chance, which allowed it to survive the needs of the kitchen fire. The point here is that 
a God who's, who has its origins in man and a God whose divine quality devi- derives from a luck of the draw is no God at all. They are not alternative gods. They are not lesser gods. Certainly they are not rival gods. No gods made with hands are no gods at all, as the Apostle Paul says. Well, pastor, if that's your argument, what's the harm in a bit of make-belief? What's the harm in people of other countries worshiping a God who in your mind doesn't exist anyway? And in some sense, I agree with you. You know, we were at Glen Williams, and uh, one of the shops that they have in Glen Williams is the glass shop. I'm sure that some of you have frequented that store. And the day that we were there, uh, they were, uh, the glassmakers were there, and so the ovens were on, and they were making things out of glass. And they take these pellets of glass, and then they place them into this like roaring hot fire, and obviously the glass melts, and it becomes softer, and so they're able to work with the glass. And they use their tools and different techniques in order to make a whole host of different things. Probably one of the most intricate things that I remember seeing was like a human heart. And they made sort of the vessels and the aorters and whatever, the veins, uh, out of glass, different colors, and it was in the shape of this human heart. And using tools, they, they skillfully make figurines, dishware, hearts, and vases, and things like this. And if that's all these people were doing in Isaiah's day, you see, creating nice little figurines to sell at the market, creating you know, little statue for, statues for boys and girls to play with, that would be no problem at all. But the problem was that these people not only created these idols, but that they bowed down to them and worshipped them and cried out to them and turned to them for deliverance. You see, what Isaiah's after and what he's well, angry about and what he's condemning, you see, is he's really not after the idol at all. He's after the idol maker and he's after the idol worshiper. The idol maker who fashions an object in his own image and the idol worshiper who bows down to an object of his own making. They were unable to see that they bow down to a block of wood which may have easily be turned into kindling for the evening barbecue and they are under such a delusion that they believe that the works of their own hands can deliver them out of the problems that they themselves cannot deliver themselves out of. And then the other retort that you might have, another rebuttal, another line of argument is that he's like, okay, well, this is great, pastor, because we don't have idols in our day. We don't have statues and we don't have these things made of marble and metal and wood. And I, I, I trust me, I don't have any statues of Buddha in my house. So we can close our Bibles, we can sit down and go on our merry way. But wait. The Bible makes it exceedingly clear that anything that we place above the true God can function as an idol. Whether that is a literal physical idol of a statue of Ishtar, a god of the Babylonians, or more subtle invisible idols like popularity, pleasure, or riches. Tim Keller says this in his book, Counterfeit Gods. An idol is something we cannot live without. We must have it. An idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything you see 
give you what only God can give. Anything that is so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. I'm kind of bore down here a little bit. I think it's important for us to do this. There's a New Testament scholar by the name of George Eldon Ladd. He taught at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California in the 20th century, and he was an enormously influential scholar in New Testament studies. One time in the 80s, they did a survey of the Evangelical Theological Society, which is the, the biggest academic evangelical group that there is, and they are each asked to write down uh, the, the, you know, the, the names of the people who have influenced you the most in your scholarship. Number one on that list was the reformer, John Calvin. Number two on that list was George Eldon Ladd. He's enormously influential. He came up, he, he sort of um, popularized the idea of an inaugurated eschatology, and if you have ever heard of pastors talking about the promises and the fulfillment of the, 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 uh, the promise and the fulfillment of the scriptures being already and not yet, that comes from George Eldon Ladd. One of Ladd's ambitions in life was to be a respected scholar, not just amongst Christians and evangelicals, but in the secular academy. He, and if you're an academic, you can probably understand kind of where this might come from or what might motivate uh, Ladd in these ways. But he wanted to have the esteem of non-Christian academics for his scholarship. So that was his ambition in life and in his vocation. In 1964, Ladd published his magnum opus, his life's work, and it received a devastating review by a secular scholar. And that devastating review devastated Ladd. One of his former students said, because I think he saw him shortly after, you know, kind of receiving this review, he was stricken down to the core. It was as though he had been mortally wounded. He was crushed. Lad was a broken man, and he would become an alcoholic. He would enter into a deep depression, and he would never fully recover. His marriage crumbled, and his relationships with his children suffered also. And then Andy Nacelli, who sort of summarizes this story in an article, says this, the story, the story of George Ladd is sad. He seems to tragically illustrate how an evangelical academic can place such a premium on academic respectability that it becomes an idol. I tell this story to illustrate that idolatry is alive and well today. We can make idols of wanting respect or accolade from the academic guild, like Ladd, we can make idols of wanting influence or power in a certain sphere. We, we can make idols of needing the approval and appreciation from others in terms of relationships. We can make idols of emotional or physical comfort. We can make idols of security and having control over the minute details of our lives and even of the future. <clears throat> The point is, we can make idols even of good and noble things. So the point of Isaiah 44 is, is not merely to slap the hands of the pagan nations of yesteryear. The point of Isaiah 44 is to identify the problem bound up in the human heart. John Calvin said that our hearts are like idol factories, 
we naturally, continually, and without God's grace intervening, produce idols endlessly and all the time. And so God needs to give us eyes to see, uh, otherwise we're going to remain in, blind, in darkness and blind and not even know it. So the questions that I have for you are these. To whom or to what do you look for comfort and help? Who do you turn to for help when you are in trouble? What does your cry, soul cry out to for deliverance? What is the thing that gives your life meaning and purpose? And however you answered that, unless you answered the Holy One of Israel or the Lord Jesus Christ, Isaiah wants you to know this, that those gods which originate and end with man, that those gods which we have made and fashioned, that those gods which we keep under our control and command cannot save you. They cannot deliver you and they cannot help you. They are entirely useless. They profit nothing and they will trick you and enslave you to themselves. What can dislodge you from inheriting the promises, O Israel? What can disqualify you from inheriting the kingdom, Maple Avenue Baptist Church? What can cut you off from the rock, the unchangeable one, and the giver of all life? If any of us give ourselves to idols and fail to worship the one true God, the rock of Israel. So you hear all this, and it's a little bit hard to receive. Maybe you're hearing these things for the first time, or maybe there are things that you knew, but you're kind of, it's kind of hitting you afresh. What should our response be? Should I be good enough? And should I kind of ratchet up the good works in my life in order to appease this angry God? Should I grieve and make myself miserable until enough penance has been done? Or should I continue pursuing these other gods and just to kind of test the waters and see if Yahweh's words are true? No, look with me to verse 21 and 22. God's call to the people of God is simple. And God's call to the people of God is gracious. Because in one sense, there is nothing for us to do. In one sense, we are simply to receive his mercy and grace and just have an open-heartedness, an open-handedness to receive his mercy. The call of God to you is that you would remember and that you would return. Remember the supremacy of Yahweh and the uselessness of the idols of this world. Remember that while you have the capacity to create idols, Yahweh has the capacity to form worlds and a people who are called by his name. And remember that while you are so prone to forget him, he has never forgotten you. And then... As a strong wind can drive away a cloud, so Yahweh has driven our sins away. And perhaps this is the supreme way that Yahweh stands head and shoulders, as it were, above every false god. Because he and he alone can deal adequately with our sins. He is able and willing to deal with our sin-loving and idol-manufacturing hearts. And he is able to clear our record of debt through the death of the Lord Jesus 
on the cross. The Christian God is superior to every false God because Yahweh is the self-sufficient rock who is the origin of all things and because our God has the ability to deal adequately with our sins. Therefore, return to me, declares Yahweh, your Redeemer. And maybe you're sitting here today and you've grown up in the church or, or maybe you have Christian roots, a Christian heritage. Maybe you've come to church for months, years, maybe even decades. And you're intellectually aware of the gospel message. You know that it's about Jesus and about him dying and him being raised at Easter time. And you even have some Christian habits and practices in your life. If you were to look at your life from an external standpoint, people would think that you're a believer in the Lord Jesus. But you have never personally, wholeheartedly, repentantly come to the God of Israel. You have never turned to the Lord Jesus Christ for help and for salvation. If that is you here this morning, then I would beg you, and more importantly than that, Isaiah begs you, and more importantly than that, the Holy Spirit begs you that you would come, that the, the, the Holy Spirit urges you to come and pleads with you to come, to return to the rock of Israel, to turn away from the gods of your life and turn to the Savior of the world, the Lord Jesus Christ. God is supreme. He will bring about his promised blessings, but he will also judge idols and those who worship them. Therefore, return to me, for I have redeemed you, says Yahweh, your Redeemer. The third movement in our passage is the assurance of God's word, and we see this in verses 24 through 28, and this kind of rounds up the chapter. It is a transition to next week's chapter, chapter 45, but we will conclude by considering these five verses. We've mentioned it often in this series, and I hope that you're picking up on this. I think they're kind of helpful markers for us, but there are different stages to Israel's history. And I won't go over all of it, but particularly for our purposes here is that Israel is in the land and they are the divided kingdom. But in 722, the Assyrians will come and they will conquer the northern, uh, the northern nation. Okay, and so Assyria will conquer the north in 722. And then eventually, sort of at the end of the 7th century, early 6th century BC, Babylon will come and wipe out and take into exile the southern tribe of Judah. And if you just think about that, that situation, that second situation where, Israel, where like the nation of the, the God's covenant people are taken into captivity into Babylon, think about their situation, okay? Much of the nation has been exiled to what is modern-day Baghdad. The jewel of Israel, Jerusalem, has been completely leveled. The temple of Yahweh has been left in ruins by Nebuchadnezzar's uh, armies, Israel is under foreign rule and authority, obviously an unenviable situation for any nation, and particularly for the covenant people of God. And most of the people who were initially brought over to Babylon will actually die in Babylon because they were there for 70 years plus. So if you just kind of like look at Israel's situation and they're kind of to look at their circumstances, the forecast was looking pretty bleak. 
A Babylonian might walk up to an Israelite and say, well, clearly, dude, our gods are stronger than your gods because, look, you are here in our midst because we conquered you. And now I know. None of us truly care about Babylon, their armies, or their gods. And none of us are personally affected that the Israelites were taken as captives there. But I bring all of that up because that's our experience in a sense. We live in a fallen world. We live in a sin-infested world. We live in a post-Christian society that has largely forgotten about God. And this province, by the way, towards the end of the 19th century, had upwards of three-quarters of the population hearing the gospel weekly in evangelical churches. Like, where has that gone? Now, it is hardly acceptable to speak of the gospel in in a true way in a public forum. And we live in a nation that balks at and ridicules those who hold to traditional views of marriage and sexuality. We live in a land that is largely unconcerned about holiness and righteousness, and we live in a land that is pluralistic, that is increasingly secular and hostile to Christianity. My point here is not to moan or groan about the current state of affairs. I don't think that's a good way for a Christian to be. But simply to say that Israel too, when they were in exile, would have felt like you. And just as they needed to, be, to hear and be reminded that God's word is reliable above all other words, that this word is the word of the creator God, and that his message stands above all other messages that they would have been hearing, so it is for us. Our only hope, my friends, our only security, our only surety is in the word and the promises of our God. So what does God say? And with this we'll conclude, we're just kind of looking at the latter part of, really of 26, 27, and 28. First, God is going to accomplish a new exodus. He's going to accomplish a new exodus, and we see an allusion to this in verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry and I will dry up your rivers. That's a reference back to the first exodus when Moses parted the Red Sea so that the Israelites could go through and deliverance was accomplished for Israel by Yahweh. Yahweh is going to bring his people out of exile and back into the land and this is going to be a new exodus. Second, he is going to accomplish this exodus through Cyrus. Long before it came to pass in history, God foretold that a ruler by the name of Cyrus would direct Israel out of exile. Now we're going to pick up on Cyrus next week in chapter 45, so we'll kind of leave much of Cyrus to next week. But as Terry put it so helpfully in a pastoral meeting this week, he says, while the carpenter works with a piece of wood in his hands, Yahweh has Cyrus at his disposal to bring about the redemption of his people. And it would be around 5, kind of 38, this all began, 516, the temple was completed. But under the rule of Cyrus, king of Persia, Israel would be granted permission to return to the land of Israel, to the capital of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple there. Yahweh back then was accomplishing a new exodus, a new redemption for his people. And I want to conclude by turning to the book of Acts because I think it kind of ties all of this together in ways 
better than I could. And so turn with me to the book of Acts, and we're going to look at three verses, and this will be the conclusion of our sermon. Look with me to Acts 2, 38. Remember, Jesus has died, he has risen, he has ascended, he has sent his Holy Spirit uh, to his disciples, and the gospel is beginning to spread uh, in Palestine, what we call Palestine, and then into the the rest of the known Roman world. But in Acts 2.38, in Jerusalem, as Peter is preaching, and the people are you know, convicted to the heart, and they say, what shall we do? This is how Peter responds, verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then turn over just one chapter with me to Acts 13:19 it says Acts 13 or sorry Acts 3 sorry Acts 3:19 to 20 Acts 3:19 and 20 it says repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and then one other verse Acts 15:15 15, 15 this time Acts 15:15 15, 15, and which really I think answers the question How are the promises of Isaiah relevant to us and to our day? Acts 15, 15, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem, is quoting from the prophet Amos, who would have been a contemporary of Isaiah, or right around that time, and he says this, After this I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Here's what's happening, just to kind of summarize very briefly. Peter and Paul have been going out to, to preach the gospel. And in their preaching and in their ministry, they were seeing not just Jews being converted to the faith and to the gospel, but they were seeing Gentiles being converted to believe in Christ and to believe in the gospel and to become Christians. And James' citation of the prophecy of Amos goes to show that he thought that the ingathering of Gentiles, the ingathering of people like us into the church of the Messiah as the fulfillment of this prophecy. In other words, the way that God rebuilds the tent of David and the way that God rebuilds the city and the temple in this age is through the gospel proclamation which goes out to the nations, which makes believers in the Lord Jesus. In other words, just to put it very clearly, is that we are a part of that rebuilding that the second David is accomplishing. We are part of this new exodus. Jesus has begun a new exodus. He has blotted out the sins of his people by dying on the cross. He has poured out his spirit upon the church. And he is gathering Jews and Gentiles into his fold. And he is rebuilding Zion. And he is restoring what was ruined. Why should you not be an idolater? It is so that you can be a participant in that kingdom that Jesus is building. It is so that you will not miss out on the most glorious salvation that has ever been accomplished, and it is so that you will experience the revival of your soul and the forgiveness of your sins. 
Return, my friends, to the rock of Israel and turn back, brothers and sisters, to our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. You are God alone, and therefore, we want to worship you exclusively. God, I would imagine that in a room of this size, that there are people who would categorically be either unbelievers or idolaters or just not right with you. And I pray, Father, for these, that you would convict their hearts and that you would pierce their conscience, that you'd help them to see their sin and the foolishness of their ways and pursuing the things of this world. And I pray that you would lead them to the Lord Jesus. But I think that if we are honest, none of us in here could say that our hearts are completely free from idolatry. And so, God, I pray that you would take the truths of this passage from this morning and that you would use those truths to root out the idols and the false gods of our, from our hearts so that we can be faithful to you, so that we can experience your blessing, and so that we can honor and glorify you as your people in this age. God, we so desperately need you, and we need you to even help us to see our need for you. So would you come and would you aid us? And we ask that you would be our redeemer and our king. We pray these things in the name of your son, the Lord Jesus. Amen.